Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. How to escape the motherhood penalty. Women face a retirement savings gap. We're going to discuss how you can fill it. And as the Adrian Mole musical wows critics in London's West End, we ask what kind of investor the teenage secret diarist could have grown into. And finally, what could happen to the best buy lists which are used by fund supermarkets in the wake of the Neil Woodford scandal? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, bringing you all of this week's money news. Having a baby, one of the best things that could possibly happen to you in your life, but sadly, one of the worst things that could possibly happen to your finances. The effects of the gender pay gap and by association, the gender pensions gap mean that the average woman who takes time off or works part time whilst raising a family will end up with a pension pot worth just 47% of what the average man's is. So what can you do? Joining me now in the studio is Micah Curry, Investment Director at Fidelity, who has written all about this issue in her FT Money column this weekend. Welcome, Micah. Hi, Claire. So this is quite a personal topic for you. It is. About a month and a half ago, I returned to work after maternity leave. I had my second baby. My husband is now in charge of looking after our second daughter. So he's doing all the burping, getting up at three o'clock in the morning because we've decided to embrace shared parental leave. And for us, it's not just about sharing the responsibility of looking after our new baby. It's also about financial equality. Because unfortunately, despite shared parental leave being around for a number of years Mm -hmm. now, it is still mostly women who take a break to have a baby and to raise a family which is fine. It's an emotional decision. It is a decision which might make sense to a lot of women, but there's a long-term price to pay. Now, sociologists refer to this as the motherhood penalty, the the opportunity cost of having a baby on your pay packet, on your chance of promotion, your career progression, and crucially, what no one talks about is your pension. Now, you have talked about women's pensions in your column because you say, you know, yes, the world is changing. There are policies like shared parental leave, which are having a difference. But women also need to take responsibility for their financial future, too. That's right. So, you know, when you have a baby, your mind is filled with all kinds of thoughts and you spend hours researching everything from, you know, your hospital's maternity ward. What is the best baby grow buggy, baby monitor? And of course, when your baby arrives, you spend a lot of time thinking about their education, about setting up a savings account for them. In this big list, do you ever take a break and think about your own financial priorities? Mm. Probably not, because we are wired to put everyone's needs ahead of our But we are going to live longer than men. We are still the primary caregivers. So we do need to take a break and to actually look at what is the impact of, you know, taking a few years of work, going part time, opting for self-employment. What 
will that do to your pension savings over the long run? Now, in your column, you go through various different scenarios of what could happen to your pension when you go on maternity leave. Briefly take us through some of the big questions that people will probably have. So the key thing to remember is if you are on a defined contribution pension scheme, which most of us will be, is your company will pay in the same amount for the first 39 weeks of statutory pay. Of course, your salary might drop depending on what your maternity policy is. That means the contributions that you pay in might be less. So check those details. If you're in a defined benefits scheme, and a lot of women are in these final salary schemes because more women are working in the public sector, your pension contributions will be deducted from your pay, but these will be based on your actual salary. So if you get standard maternity pay, your contributions will drop after six weeks. But what your employer pays in will stay the same. Now, a lot of women might take longer than that. A lot of women might decide to come back to work part-time. And the price will be that you are earning less and your contributions from yourself and the employer-matched contributions will be less. (coughs) Now, if you do decide to maybe take a break from employment altogether for a couple of years, this is where it really becomes important to set up pension infrastructure because no more money will be going into your workplace pension, even though it'll still be growing if it's invested. So look at a self-invested personal pension. Even if you're not working, you or your partner can contribute £2,880 each year. And with a government tax top-up, that can be bumped up to £3,600. So a lot of people, um, I have to say, who've already commented on the article on, online had no idea that they would be in a position where they could fund um, a pension for, for, their, for their spouse or uh, for their partner. So that is definitely something that's worth talking about. Now, any women who are listening, um, thinking of starting a family who attempted to stop um, pension savings, what would be um, your take on that particular problem? Don't do it. So it could be very tempting if you are grappling with the cost of childcare, if you're grappling with the cost of raising a child, which is expensive. You know, There's a whole new set of expenses. You can still put a bit into a pot and do that. Also look at your state pension. Um, As things stand at the moment, you've got to contribute 35 years of credits, national insurance credits, to get the full state pension. And if you're not working, you can still receive these credits until your child is 12 years old. And it is interesting. I had a colleague send me an email this morning after reading the article saying that he had no idea about these national insurance credits. And his wife has taken a 12-year break from employment to raise the children. She's only just returned to full-term employment and he's going to investigate getting those NI contributions. You you know, it's a very poorly publicized piece of information. I'm sure you've spoken about it on this show before. And it is estimated to cost women in excess of one billion pounds in lost retirement savings. So definitely something to be aware of. And and just to to spell that out, it's child benefit that women need to claim for in order um, to get those national insurance credits, even if they earn or their partner earns too much to actually receive the benefit. If you don't register for child benefit online, then you won't be getting um, those national insurance credits. Well, thank you very much there to Micah Curry, the investment director at Fidelity. You can read Micah's column, How to Escape the Motherhood Penalty Now, at ft.com slash money. We'd love to hear your comments um, on this issue. You can comment on the bottom of the article online or as ever email us money at ft.com reading somebody else's diary is a novel way of learning about how to manage your money as the huge success of the money diaries has shown us 
But before that phenomenon happened, older listeners may fondly recall reading The Secret Diaries of Adrian Mole, the lovable misanthrope created by the late great Sue Townsend. This week, FT columnist Moya O'Neill from Interactive Investor has said she's such a mega fan, she's written a diary imagining what kind of investor Mole himself could have turned out to be. Well, welcome to the podcast, Moira. Hi, Claire. So the most shocking thing about your tribute column was that Adrian Mole is no longer 13 and three quarters. He's nearly 52. Yes. How could he? How could he possibly be approaching the age where he could cash in a pension. It's, uh, yeah, having been a cult figure through our school years, and I remember the BBC series as well, um, quite clearly. But it's, um, yeah, interesting. Uh, I very much enjoyed imagining what his investment path might have been. Um, and I was, the key thing when I was rereading the book, which I did before the column, was that he's obviously Adrian always thought of himself as an intellectual. Yes. So I thought Adrian now has to think of himself as sort of some kind of super investor right from the beginning. And um, then I imagined that he would have to um, sort of climb this curve of idiocy where he starts out thinking he knows it all. Um, he's quite emotional in his responses to the markets and he gets it horribly wrong and then in the end le- learns some good lessons. So spanning three decades, that's what I attempted to extract some key moments in stock market history and show how he would have uh, responded to them. Well, the readers, I have to say, absolutely um, loved it, um, particularly um, details about um, how he will consult Nigel, um, his best friend throughout the series, who, whose uncle, um, you imagine, works in the city, um, about how to how to devise his, his investment strategy and the books that he's getting out from the local library um, about investing and the horror he experiences while noticing the vicar um, is purchasing a very expensive brand um, of toilet paper. But there's some fantastic details in there that you've picked out through through um, the 80s and the 90s that many investors listening will no doubt remember. Yeah, well, one was the launch of the FTSE 100 index, which was 1984. And um, at that point, he wasn't even 18, but he's imagining what he might invest in, um, hoping that he's going to be a millionaire by the age of 25. And that's where Sainsbury's came in, that he really likes Sainsbury's. And that was one of the original stocks <laughs> in the FTSE 100. Um, and um, then, you know, I was thinking about, you know, he was very much into being a socialist. So um, when Mrs Thatcher was speaking at the Tory party conference in 1985, she said um, she was wishing for a a society where owning shares is as common as having a car. So imagine Adrian watching that on the news and thinking, oh, if if I agree with her. Does that mean I'm not a socialist anymore? Um, you know, so um, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, and um, one of the most momentous things was investing in British gas shares, um, which was advertised everywhere in, um, in 1986. And Adrian decides that he's going to stop smoking and save up enough money to do it. Um, he feels sorry for his cousin Sid because the campaign was all like. <laughs> um, uh, about Sid and uh, he finds that a bit irritating but um, he manages to sell British gas for a healthy profit after the first week of trading which with hindsight was probably a mistake and one of the readers actually picked up on that and said he turned his own British gas shares into a fridge freezer (laughs) Um, Oh wow, no doubt from B-Jam or one of those retro retailers of yesteryear and uh, I also particularly love the the fact that he bought a bottle of gin Zano Bianco um, to, to to celebrate his um, 
his success. But then one of the next things that you cover is how the emotional mole reacts to the 87 market crash, Black Monday. Yes, he said he, I imagined he was so upset that he lit a cigarette downstairs on the bus and got a £50 fine. God, I remember um, when you could smoke on the bus. <laughs> but also he decides that's time to sell out. So he makes the bad decision. He doesn't have it in him to invest in the stock market and he gives up at that point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he feels the fear and he gets out, which is a lot that a lot of people obviously did. So, I mean, to sum up, I mean, Obviously, any investor of um, any age or any experience could hugely enjoy um, reading your imagine, imaginings of the kind of investor that Mole could have been. But what are the kind of key takeaways that they can take from his experiences? Well, hindsight is always a wonderful thing. My own father on reading this said, I wish we, we'd had a time machine and we could go back and imagine or you know, predict all of this. But um, I think it's all about uh, not letting your emotions uh, rule your investing behaviours and sticking with sensible investments for the long term. Um, Adrian was recommended at the start of his investing career to invest in a boring investment trust, F&C investment trust. He um, he did it briefly, but then got more into his um, share picking, got it wrong. At the end, he wishes with hindsight that he had stuck with that all along because he would be much better set for retirement. Well, there are lessons in there for us all. Thank you very much to Moira O'Neill, Head of Personal Finance at Interactive Investor. You can read her excellent column, The Secret Diary of an Investor, aged 52 and three quarters, now on ft.com slash money. Now, finally, where do you go when you want a recommendation for a book, an album, perhaps a TV series or even a film? Well, many UK consumers are more likely to consult the lists of top picks offered by places like Amazon, Spotify or Netflix rather than browse the shelves of their local shops. Now, the same trend has taken hold in the world of personal investing, where DIY investors increasingly turn to investment platform lists of recommended funds for inspiration. Now, on the one hand, this helps them narrow down the universe of more than 3,000 funds and other types of investment. But in the light of the Woodford scandal, regulators are increasingly questioning the power um, of these marketing tools and whether any conflicts of interests are lurking. Now, joining me now is Siobhan Riding, FT reporter, who has written all about this issue in FT Money. Welcome, Siobhan. Hello. So let's start with the basics. How do the investment platforms select which funds they are going to recommend? So fund supermarkets have um, big research teams and like any advisor or wealth manager, they have a process they follow to identify the best performers. So they'll start by doing a quantitative uh, assessment of funds. They'll use a fund database and, and apply criteria to find the best performers. They'll check things like um, the risk profile of funds and then they'll Use, you know, they'll send their researchers to go out and meet managers and talk to managers about their process, their philosophy and everything that comprises the uh, fund management team. Where fund supermarkets and, and their best buy lists differ is in the commercial approach to compiling a best buy list. Some fund supermarkets uh, filter out funds that charge fees that are considered to be too high Whereas others, and this is notably the model that Hargreaves Lansdowne pioneered, Mm. negotiate discounts after they've selected a subset of funds. Um, So they they negotiate with the manager to bring down the investment fee and to pass that investment on to the end investor. 
Now, of course, that could also flatter the fee that the platform um, itself is charging, which is one of the reasons why um, Best Buy lists have come into question. But you also mentioned some research in your piece about how much investors rely um, on these recommendations, which are provided just for guidance. It's not qualified financial advice. It's just to help investors pick from the huge numbers of funds that are around. Yes, exactly. Fund supermarkets are quick to say that these best buy lists are meant to be a kind of secondary sense check. They're they're meant to complement other research and advice that an investor might um, take. Um, But in reality, we can see from research that investors don't necessarily make that distinction. Um, uh, Research by Boring Money found that 25% of investors rely on these best buy lists. So they use them as, as their primary source for DIY investing. Um, and that's, that's, so that's quite a significant proportion. And we can see that the that buy lists are very influential. Um, a report into platforms by the Financial Conduct Authority found that when a fund is recommended on a best buy list, it attracts an average of £5 million per year while it's on the list. So a lot of investor money is going into these funds, showing how reliant investors are. And of course, the cat was really put among the pigeons this year with the suspension of the Woodford Equity Income Fund, because up until the point of suspension, it was still featured on the Hargreaves Lansdowne Wealth 50 uh, list, which is their um, selection of the funds that they think are the best. Um, So, I mean, what could the regulator do next about this problem? Well, yeah, the regulator is is very attentive at the moment to Best Buy lists and and other policymakers are putting pressure on as well, such as the Treasury Select Committee. Um, The the FCA itself has looked at Best Buy lists in the past when it reviewed platforms and it decided not to impose extra rules on Best Buy lists. And it actually acknowledged the the useful role that Best Buy lists play um, at a time when um, small investors struggle to access financial advice. So it seems unlikely that the regulator would completely ban Best Buy lists. But people I spoke to expect regulators to apply greater scrutiny to platforms and how they compile the lists. So you could see platforms having to disclose more about their methodology, how they would have to make it clearer how they compile their lists and what they're prioritising in selecting funds. Because one of the things that the Woodford scandal pointed to was that the Hargreaves-Lansdowne list may not have been clear on whether it was recommending the cheapest funds or the best-performing funds. So in future, you might see fund supermarkets having to state clearly what they're looking for when they're compiling their best-buy lists. And finally, you also got hold of some research into the success um, of various investment picks that different fund supermarkets made um, in 2016 um, as their favourites and how well they've done. What did that tell you? So the research looked at UK equity fund picks by five buy lists over a period of three years and it found that only two out of those five buy lists actually performed better than a tracker fund which simply replicates the market. So that's quite a, a poor indictment of the record of best buy lists, which are meant to select the best performing funds. But we can actually see that many of them don't perform better than tracker funds after fees have been deducted. Now, it's worth saying that, like any financial advisor or or fund manager, you can choose the wrong stock, you can choose the wrong fund, or fund can be out of favour. 
Um, but the question is whether best buy lists are um, being honest about the fact that active funds sometimes don't perform better than tracker funds and are, are much more expensive. And, and some people have said that that best buy lists need to provide more options and need to provide a greater range of low-cost funds, passive funds, which hasn't traditionally been the case. The, the best buy list sector has been quite intertwined with the active fund industry. And, and also investment trusts, you mentioned in your piece. Exactly. Which, you know, many, many listeners are very interested in. Yes, and, and you know, the, the platforms that I looked at, only one of the platforms out of five recommended investment trusts. So, and, and there have been criticisms in the past about investment platforms not re- recommending investment trusts because they generate uh, revenue for, for platforms. Um, but, but the question is now, you know, do you need to pr- provide a, a whole of market list because that provides investors with all the options they, they need? Well, thanks very much there to Siobhan Riding. You can read her cover feature now at ft.com slash money, and we will keep reporting on this story in the future. Well, that's it for The Money Show this week. If you want to get in touch with me, Claire Barrett, or our team of writers on FT Money, or even suggest a topic you'd like to hear us talk about on the next podcast, then email us money at ft.com. To stay up to date with the latest money news, you can follow us on Twitter at FT Money, or check out our new LinkedIn page to search for Financial Times Your Money. We will be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.